Coming up on this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, rich people are reconsidering how much money they're leaving to their kids. And Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey has got some quirky health habits, including trying a 10-day silent retreat. Plus, Patrick Gallo, who plays Mario Puzo in the Paramount Plus series, The Offer, joins us. Don't forget, subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob and Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason. That's Sue Kalinske. Sue, it is Tuesday, May the 10th. How are you? I'm, uh, I still have a terrible, terrible cold. Do you? But you te- did you test for COVID? I did. And you're clear? I'm clear. So they say. Excellent. Well, we'll have to take their word for it. So uh, we got Patrick Gallo coming up for you in the show. The offer is just a great new series on Paramount Plus. Uh, In the meantime, I wanted to throw a couple of things at you, Sue. I know you've got something too. So uh, there is a a study from Motley Fool, which is a investing sort of guide organization website, something like that. They asked 2,000 high net worth individuals classified as people with a net worth of over a million dollars and their attitudes toward inheritances. And among the top concerns, something that 67% of respondents talked about was leaving too much money for their heirs. The uh, respondents had numerous concerns about the effects of leaving too much money to their heirs, including that the wealth would be used irresponsibly or that it would make people lazy. Sue, does a big inheritance make people dumb and lazy? Um, I don't know the dumb part because I think if they were dumb, they were probably dumb before. Um, but I think it could have a lazy effect for sure. Like uh, sometimes I think, how much money would it take for me to have where I would say, I'm not working anymore? Right. You know? What's um, that number? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not near it, yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I, and you know, a lot of money in, in, uh, in the wrong hands, uh, could create something extremely negative. I yeah. Think. I mean, you know, it cuts both ways. So for example, so I, I didn't inherit any money from my dad. I'm not going to inherit any money from my, my mom. Um, I, you know, I sort of made my own fortune in life, but I can see how being handed a whole bunch of money at a young age would make me young and would make me uh, dumb, irresponsible and lazy. And, and I really do think uh, there's a story that uh, I hope they don't listen to this podcast. It should be the slogan of the show. I hope they don't listen to this podcast. (laughs) So we used to hang out with this, uh, this family back in Ohio. And uh, the grandfather invented Windex 
and Tidy Bull. Wow. Windex and Tidy Bull. They were worth billions with a B. Okay. But the grandfather did something interesting. He didn't leave any money to his son. He left all the money to his grandkids. And the idea was he would skip a generation. So his son got nothing and the grandkids got billions of dollars. Now the grandkids did chip in and help out the dad and all that stuff, but they literally generation skipped with that fortune. Does that make sense? Uh, God, I would hate to be the generation that missed it. because <laughs> The generation that got, got that's skipped. That's real yeah. screwed up because, you know, in some ways you would think, well, I'm definitely in like Flynn. I mean, how am I not going to get that, you know? Um, yeah, I, 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 I think it's, is it a mistake? I don't know if it's a mistake, but, you know, I would hope that people who are left a lot of money would do what what I would do if I decided not to work anymore, if I didn't have to work. And that would be to volunteer um, because yeah. I've, I volunteer, I've have volunteered a lot, even while I, you know, while I'm been working, yeah, you know, sure. I've always found the time to do something like that. So that could be, you know, the non-lazy part, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. So you're still out there, you're doing stuff like, I can't imagine and I don't know what the number is that would get me to honestly, I don't know that there is a number that would get me to walk away at this point from, you know, what I'm what I'm doing right now, because I'm doing it because I love it. Right. Right. Um, but at some point, uh, you got a lot of money. I don't know what the number is that would get me to uh, to to quit it all. But. Uh, I'm always going to be busy. I'm always going to be doing stuff. I'm always going to be experimenting. I'm always going to be doing the culture pop podcast. Like I'm never really going to slow down because I, I always, my, and my dad kind of taught me this. He retired when he was really young and uh, it's kind of like use it or lose it. Like if you start shutting down and spending time in the easy chair and doing nothing but watching ball games, you're, you're going to, you're going to waste away to some degree. Uh, so I'm always going to be doing stuff. But I do think that there are, in particular, professional athletes, like Johnny Menzel comes from oil money. Right. So how hungry was Johnny Menzel to make it in the NFL? Obviously not hungry enough to deal with whatever personal issues that he had. So sometimes I think money does rob you of of the hunger to go out there and, and do your own thing and make your own money. Right. Yeah. And I think there are people that just maybe just didn't have aspirations to do anything. And this is a perfect excuse for them not to, to search for it. Right. Right. Yeah. You know? um, all right. I want to get one more in here. Uh, mm -hmm. So Twitter co-founder, Jack Dorsey, who no longer owns Twitter because I think um, uh, Elon Musk had some pocket change and ended up buying the company. Um, he eats only one meal per day and once spent his birthday at a silent retreat where you can't use technology or make eye contact. So he only eats dinner. He does an extreme version of intermittent fasting because he only eats dinner, doesn't eat the rest of the day. Um, and he went to a silent meditation retreat in Myanmar um, and he did meditation. Uh, he, uh, he did no, uh, he did physical exercise, no devices, no reading, no writing, no music, 
no intoxicants, no meat, no talking, no making eye, to- eye contact with other people. What do you think of Jack Dorsey's extreme 10 days? Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. Do you? you know? Would you I try did. it? Um, I really have no interest in doing something like that. Um, but, you know, years ago, I went to Bali and we went to a um, monks. Uh, it was like a giant spread where like all these monks, you know, lived. Right. The old and monk spread, as they called it. <laughs> monk spread. <laughs> you put it on toast. Exactly. Um, and uh, it was interesting to and a little odd to be walking around and no one it was it would and they were silent so no one was talking right and you just see people um you know walking in pairs you know whatever and like just nothing like complete silence and um so we did that for you know i don't know like an hour while we were there right and um and it was a little challenging because you're you just just your instincts want, you know, make you want to make a comment about something. Some monk. Like, <laughs> What's up? So, um, but even to, you know, the person I was with, you know, you want to make a comment or you want to laugh or, or whatever. Um, I, I, I've never really had an interest in doing something that extreme, but um, it, it I don't know. I mean, it I've sounds d- like a pretty cool know, thing to I've do. I've done a couple of really interesting variations on this. So I've two, two times I did a New Year's silent retreat where, and it wasn't a week, but starting on New Year's morning all the way until um, New Year's Eve morning, all the way until midnight when it turned New Year's, um, we were silent. I did it once with a yoga teacher named Saul David Ray and another time with my minister at my church, Dr. Reverend Michael Beckwith. It's kind of awe. There's there's a feeling of awe involved in it because when it actually turns midnight and, you know, whether it's a big deal or not, there's something, you know, something awe-inspiring about becoming a new year or turning into a new year. I, to be silent during that was unbelievably cool and was a really great way to sort of start the year. The other time I went to a place called the We Care Spa, which is out in Desert Hot Springs. I have no idea if it's still there. So the deal there is you just don't eat. Uh, You don't eat for a week. And uh, they give you like supplements and like a little powdered soup that you add water to and it becomes soup, like that kind of stuff. But you don't eat for a week. And uh, you also every day get, what do they call that? A colonic every single day. Oh, boy. So you get a colonic in the morning mm-hmm. and then you don't eat anything all day, all night. And then you get a colonic in the morning and that goes on for like an entire week. But and what are they clean? What are they cleaning out if you're not eating anything? Well, because the stuff hangs out in there. Right. I mean, to, to use the medical term, stuff hangs <laughs> out in there. Uh, and so so you are getting getting cleaner, clearer, clearer as you go along. But when I walked out of there after a week without eating and with, uh, you know, seven colonics, I was high as a kite. Like I had just an emotional, physical, physiological high. Totally worth it. Went to get a hamburger, ate it right away, 
ruined the whole thing. Well, that's not what you're not supposed to like. You're supposed to ease into eating. Yeah, I just uh, went I got right a for a burger. Animalized. <laughs> went right for the burger. Well, you probably lost a lot of weight. I did lose a lot of weight. I did. And I and I did feel good afterwards. Like, I, I think there's something good to it. I don't know if it's like medically. Well, I mean, they, they've got doctors and stuff out there. I hope the We Care Spa doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> you hope that they really care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, uh, I, I've done fasting. Like, there was a very popular diet that was going on in the 80s called, it was like the lemonade diet. Yeah, I remember that. Right, with cayenne pepper and lemon juice and uh, a tad of, like, uh, maple, maple syrup. Maple syrup, yeah. Right. And uh, I did that for 10 days. Yeah, I know people that did that for a really long time. I can't imagine it's good for you. Um, I, they, I, I, I still read about it. Way. People are still doing it. I mean, the only time I fast, I fast for Yom Kippur. You know, that's the only time I pass. I, I fast. Yeah. And that's, um, and, that, and, and that's hard. Like one day is hard for me. See, I don't know if any of that stuff works. Like, does intermittent fasting work? I've got no idea. Well, when you're doing it for Yom Kippur, you're doing it for religious reasons. No, obviously that's not intermittent fasting for the <laughs> Lord. That's something different altogether. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the same thing. Jews get off easy. Just <laughs> yeah. one day. Uh, all right, one more thing. So this is the story of Gus the Golden Doodle. Golden Doodles are so cute. What is that? A golden retriever and a poodle, right? And a poodle. So there's a golden doodle named Gus. He's uh, six years old, and he unfortunately had a tumor on his leg, and it had to be his leg had to be amputated. So he used to love running like out in the the pond behind these folks' house um, and into river and stuff like that. So here's Gus, three legs now, cancer survivor. Very first time going back into the water, swims out. And the family is like, oh, wow, look, Gus can still swim. Then Gus swims back in. He's got a little baby otter in his, in his mouth that he saved from, from drowning. So here's this three-legged dog who's a cancer survivor. Very first trip back into the water, saves this little baby otter. Isn't that a heartwarming story? It's really heartwarming. And I think he should be the new mayor of Los Angeles. <laughs> for, for homeless otters? Just, just for humanity. Yeah, I know. What and a, animal what a, anity. What a, what a nice story that is. I, oh, I that is that. really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like whenever, whenever I see stories like that about animals, which kind of goes into something that I wanted to talk about. Well, go ahead. We got, we got a minute. Okay, there's a new show out uh, on Discovery Plus, and it's um, it's Love in the Jungle. Have you heard of it? No. It's people, 14 singles looking for love. <laughs> they, they, I guess they, 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 they have this, like, whatever their spirit animal is, I guess. Okay. That is the animal that they channel to live in the in a jungle, and the, and you they can, there's no talking, <laughs> right? They just use this whatever the the characteristics are of this particular animal that they are channeling. That's how they relate 
after the other singles to find their mate. Now, do the other singles know what animal they are? Like my spirit animal is an elephant. Would I have to tell people that my spirit no, animal you, you, is no a, talking? No, 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 no talking. So you here you are with some, you know, with with people or, you know, you know, or you go off with somebody who doesn't talk. And is using their and and is just acting like an animal. And I'm thinking, <laughs> uh, I could get that in my house. <laughs> I don't need to go into a jungle. Um, yeah. So this is the new. You know, they keep on trying to like move the needle of like what is the next dating show thing, dating next reality show. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So they showed. Uh, you know, there's like trailer for it. And you see someone like, you know, like being an ape and like going into like, like, like a guy, like going into like a woman's face, like just, you know, you know, just, just making sounds. And it is so ridiculous. And then you, you like, you see them like, like humping like another person and like really acting like an animal. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like sniffing around like some woman's ass. I mean, it is just, it is so ridiculous. And what time is it on? (laughs) I don't even know if it's on. Sounds sounds entertaining as hell. Oh, oh, actually it premiered on Sunday. Oh, good. It premiered uh, May 8th. I am. I am going to have to look for that. I'm going to have to look for that. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, so uh, so much great TV on right now. And uh, our guest today is enjoying his breakout role in the series The Offer on Paramount+. Plus. He plays the role of Mario Puzo in this story of how The Godfather got made. Now, 50 years ago, Patrick Gallo is with us. Patrick, thank you so much for doing this. It's my absolute pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you guys having me on your show. So the series is incredible and timely. It's the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. It's one of the greatest, if not the greatest movie ever made. Do you, do you remember the first time you watched The Godfather? Yes, I do. The first time um, I watched The Godfather, I was with my father and I was probably 12 years old, 13, 12 or 13. And, uh, you know, that was the first time I watched it. And it was quite, quite an experience um, because it was very, um, you know, it was kind of like a whole movie. Like I felt like I knew uh, the people and the environments and, you know, I could taste it and smell it, you know, because it was so similar to kind of uh, the people that my father spent time with and that I you know, that loved me and embraced me and picked me up and, you know, and I could smell them. And, and it was an interesting, uh, the first time I ever saw a film where I felt like, wow, it's, I can actually like touch this film. So it was, it was very meaningful. How much did you know about what went on in the making of this before you got this gig? I mean, I knew little bits and pieces, you know what I mean? I knew that, you know, they weren't crazy about Pacino. I knew the mafia was involved and, um, but, but, you know, nothing like that detail. I'd heard a couple of stories about, you know, Johnny Fontaine and that whole situation with Coppola and kind of being strong armed here and there, but, but nothing, um, most of what we did in the show, I didn't really know about those specifics, you know? Um, which I was glad, you know, cause it was like, I was discovering them as we were going on, you know, so, so, so you cool. mentioned, you mentioned that, uh, 
it reminded you, the characters reminded you of the folks that your dad hung around with. Would, would, who did, who was your dad hanging around with? Well, my father, you know, my father hung around with a lot. Most of the people my father hung out with, it was either uh, detectives or gangsters. Hmm. And a lot of times they were all at my house and they were all sitting at the table eating dinner together. Um, you know, they weren't, uh, they were just, you know, men to me, you know, friends of my father's, but they were all, you know, connected. I mean, I, as I got older, I started to, to realize like the men that picked me up, like I was saying and held me, like they did some pretty, pretty, uh, pretty difficult to imagine things with those hands, you know, that they would hug me with and everything. And I, but I, you know, when I was a kid, um, you know, obviously I, those things didn't occur to me, but as I got older, I certainly realized, wow, like before they were here, they might've been, you know, beating the shit out of somebody. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it happened, you know, dealing with all the things that they deal with, uh, not to mention the constant flow of stolen merchandise that was going through my house. <laughs> So was it like literally the stuff that fell off trucks, that old, that old bit of business? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everything. I remember one time uh, we lived in this big old house and uh, one time I went up into the closet and I opened up this closet that was in my room, this enormous closet. And it was filled with like velour robes. Okay. (laughs) And I'm talking, yeah, and I'm saying like there was that was one closet. There were like others in other closets. I'm talking about a hundred robes, and everyone in my family had these robes all the time. And then I would go to friends' houses, and then their parents would walk out, and they'd be wearing the robes. So my father was just giving them away to people because he had like 150 velour robes hanging, you know, in the house. Uh, he also loved clogs. He was very short. Uh, he got a whole, I don't know, he must've had 50 pairs of clogs in the house. Um, we didn't get deli meats from the deli. We had like the whole thing of bologna, you know, the, the big salami. Like we had a, de- we had a deli cutter in the house. Everything was robbed. Um, so, so there was, so did your dad wear clogs and a velour robe sometimes? Absolutely. <laughs> All the time. Are you kidding me? Like, that's how I saw my father. I mean, it was, I mean, I would walk into my house and I'd go into the kitchen and there'd be like a, you know, a, a five foot tall hot cocoa machine in the kitchen, you know, or an arcade game, you know, like from an arcade, like all of these things that were like normal. And I said, okay, I just kind of was like, and there that we have that now. And then you turn around and it'd be gone. So, but, but your dad wasn't connected. It was always that he, he always said to me that they were just his friends, that he never wanted to work for anyone. So they were just his friends. Um, and that he didn't ever want to be the one reporting to anyone. Um, and so, yeah, they, they, and he said, you know, they respected me because I never, uh, I never did work for them, but I think he did, he definitely did things with them. And I know he ran numbers for a while. So, uh, 
I know that for a fact. What, what Even when he, I was a kid. What did you think he did for a living or what did he tell you he did for a living? Well, I know he, he, it was, he had a construction company. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's a red uh, flag. But exa- exactly. <laughs> but he would, he would actually bring me, you know, and like a big parts of my childhood were, were going to these construction sites with him. And, you know, so when I think of concrete, I think of my father, you know, because it was always so impressive to me. Um, and he loved architecture. He was such an interesting guy. Um, but, you know, aside of the fact uh, uh, of that and him being an um, amazingly wonderful guy, uh, we had a lot of stolen goods. Hmm. You know, it's, it is such yeah. a crazy thing. You know, when I was growing up, my mother's brother, his, uh, his yeah. nickname was Tootsie. He was my uncle Tootsie. Perfect. Perfect. And, uh, he lived in Brooklyn. He, uh, I, I thought that he worked at a plant nursery. It was a, uh, a front. He was a bookie. And I mean, I didn't know it as a kid, but there was something about him that I knew he was involved in something. And apparently the great story is he went into a men's clothing store with my brother. My brother was probably in junior high school and they walk in and the guy says, oh, oh, you must be one of the Smith. You're one of the Smith brothers. And his last name was not Smith. And he just played along. And he said, uh, yeah, he said, then the guy said, which, which one are you? And he says, I'm Bob. And he said, oh, hi, Bob. And apparently my brother walked out of the store with hundreds of dollars worth of clothes because the guy thought he was someone he knew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's brilliant. I love it. I, and that, that is the kind of personality, too. And I'll, I'll tell you one more quick story and then you can you can ask more questions. I'm sorry, but now you're getting me into this. No, this I is remember, great. Uh, one time my brother, uh, Frank, who was not no longer with us. He passed away. Um, but, but, um, I'm at home and he comes in the door and he was out of town and he comes in and he's got a huge crate and he opens it up and it's filled with lobsters. And I'm like, Oh my God. He's like, get, and he talked like this. He'd say, get, get the pan out, put, put the fucking, put the water in the pan. We're going to cook these fucking things up. You know, he was, you know, and, uh, and I say, Oh, okay, Frank. Okay. And we're putting the water in and we start cooking lobsters and we're cooking lobster after lot. You know, we're, we're just, we're just feasting. And then the phone rings and, uh, and he goes, if it's the airline, hang up. And I airline. Hello? Yes. Is this Frank Gallo? Uh, uh, no, we, we, something was taken from the airport. Um, the police are on the way to the house. And I said, Frank, they just told me that they're on the way to the house. He goes, Oh my God, we took the fucking lobs. We stole them from the airport. So the next thing you know, we got all these, we're, we're literally knee deep in lobster shells in the kitchen. Cops are on the way. I, we start scrambling. He put them all in the bags, put them in the bag. He's cleaning the house. We're filling up gar- a garbage bag full of lobster shells. And he tells me, take these lobster shells, get in the car and find a dumpster, get out of the neighborhood. <laughs> and I, next thing I know, you know, I'm 17 years old. I am speeding through the streets with a garbage bag full of lobster shells, trying to figure out a way, you know, to get rid of these lobster shells. And he got away with it, but that was it. They went to the airport to, to steal lobster. It, it's like the Goodfellas uh, Lufthansa heist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. The airport is the, on the, the lob, phone. The Lobtons. The Lobtons the eyes. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah, what not, it is. not to be left out of the story. My my uh, yeah. my aunt Madge in Philly yeah. uh, used to take me for a walk uh, every day when I was in Philly. 
And she, and I was, you know, I was six, seven, eight years old. She was running numbers. She ran, she ran numbers for him and used to uh, go from stoop to stoop and, and get and, and play the numbers with those folks. And I remember as a little kid, maybe 10 years old, I went, and this is, this is uh, how I really connected with the Godfather. Um, at 10 years old, I go to a wedding. Uh, my cousin Maureen was marrying Dickie DeFalco. And Dickie was a Beautiful. connected guy. And the, the wedding was like the most elaborate, beautiful, crazy <laughs> wedding I'd ever seen, catered to the nines, all that stuff. And uh, so when I later saw The Godfather, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the kind of wedding I went to, which right. was just which was just awesome. Um, you know, I, I'm a Godfather fanatic. My I, my last dog was named Enzo, named after Enzo the Baker. The Baker, of course, of course. The hospital. And I have a dog now named Fredo, who, of course, is is Fredo. Was um, Enzo a Chihuahua, by the way? He was not a Chihuahua. He was a little uh, terrier guy. Um, the, I, I just because Chihuahuas are always so nervous, and you figure Enzo was just such a wreck. Oh, Enzo was a wreck <laughs> by the time <laughs> standing out in front of the hospital. Yeah, so yeah. you're playing a guy who passed away 23 years ago. How do you go pl about playing this guy? What research did you do on on Puzo himself? Uh, you know, I looked out there for as much as I could possibly find on his life, and there's a lot out there. He wrote a lot about himself. Um, uh, transcripts from interviews. Uh, there was a Charlie Rose interview with him, uh, you know, where, you know, he talks about his career for the most part, but, and then it's basically, but what it really came down to was, you know, going through the books that he wrote, going through his work. Um, he put so much of himself into those words. He cared so much about it. Um, he was such an artist, such a poet, and he cared so much about the value um, that his art held. And he knew he was an artist. He knew that. He would refer to himself that way. And I knew that in that, I would find his spirit. And, and then it was like, I'm not going to do an Im impression of him. I didn't want to approach it that way. I wanted to do my best to know his work, capture his spirit, use it as a roadmap, and, and just hope that it came through through my own interpretation sort of instinctually as we worked on it, uh, on the set. And that's really how I, I found my version of Puzo. You know, the thing that I love so much about the film, I, I don't, I don't, I don't probably know anybody that hasn't seen it and hasn't seen it numerous times. It's so iconic. I love, I love that you see the setup for the scene, but you never see the reenactment of the scene. And that was brilliant because you know, you know what's happening. You know what you're going to see and mm. what you're going to see is not going to be as memorable as, as, as what you saw. And I thought that was so, so smart, such a smart way of doing it. How much do you know? How much do you know of, of what it's going to be, you know, as an actor, you know, like, like when it's all said and done, how much do you know? The um, I mean, you just, you don't really know. And I'm not one that reads ahead. You know, I'm kind of like, um, I don't like to know as an actor, I don't like to know. And I like to kind of be surprised if I, if I'm able to do that with a script, um, then I, and, and surprise myself. And so it's a little newer to me. It's a, it's fresher to me as I approach it. And, um, and then it's also like, 
it, it, you kind of hold on to that excitement of not knowing until you have to know, until you have to actually sit down and watch it. Um, because that mystery of it, you know, is so, um, you know, it's kind of an exhilarating feeling and you never want to, you almost don't ever want to see it. Um, because that wonder of what it's going to be is so exciting, you know? So, um, so, you know, for me, and I have friends of mine that want to know everything and like, want to, want to know what, like rope, like know everything that's going on. And I'm one that takes a step out of it. And I want to know very little. You know, so, you know, I, I cover sports for a living for ESPN. And one of the things yeah. that uh, I always notice of great teams is that there's always a line, uh, alignment between the owner, the front office, the coach and the star player. And I see the same thing with the Godfather because you've got the studio exec, uh, Robert Evans, uh, you've got the screenwriters, Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola. You've got Coppola as a director. Um, it, it seem, and, and you've got stars all on the same page. It, it took all those people. I, I should mention, and producer Albert Ruddy, uh, took all those people and that kind of focus to actually overcome uh, the struggle that happened in trying to make the movie, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're really, you know, you got a lot of different animals moving around in the same pen. and. Um, and they all have different appetites. And it's such a difficult thing to navigate, um, you know, because the powers that, be, you know, because you're also dealing with the art of it. You know, the people that are going to make this thing happen are the artists, you know, Coppola and Puzo are the ones that are, are, are painting the picture. Um, and that's such a delicate process. So, you know, fighting for that vision um, and then having to push it onto the producer and define it to the studios, that becomes a different version. So, I mean, it becomes so complex and none of it's a guarantee. None of it's actually 100% going to work uh, or be accepted or it's going to come back and say, they want to do that, but they won't do it this way. And then artists are like, but that's the only way it can be done. So that challenge back and forth is never ending. And it's a hard thing to deal with. It's amazing. I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I produce TV and, um, you know, I've definitely had my days where I just felt like I was going to have nervous breakdown because, you know, nobody's doing what you want them to do. And and I work in post. So it's like, oh, they didn't get this and they're not going to go back and get it. And how are you going to make it work? It, yeah. It, it amazes me that that all producers uh, don't have ulcers you know, from from their profession. Oh, yeah. I think um, I probably do. I just don't think they tell everyone about them. Yeah, that's true. But I want to know, like, do you ever go to the set, even if uh, like it's you're not shooting something because you want to see what how it's being shot like or or an actor like and not only in this, but in your career, you know, like I've, I've heard actors say, oh, God, you know, working with so and so. Oh, God, I, I had to you know, I wasn't in I wasn't in the scene, but I, I really wanted to go and just see them work. Do you, have you done that? Do you do that? Uh, uh, yeah, I think it's more like um, I would do that if I was already on the set and something that I wasn't in was being shot. Um, and I remember when we were shooting, um, when we were shooting the scene at the Sands, when uh, Damone uh, reveals that he's not going to do the, he's not going to play the part. And, uh, there's a scene between Ruddy and Coppola sitting at the table. I come in at the very end and say, Oh, let me in on this. It's the hug scene. 
And I remember, so they shot that scene. So I was there because we were shooting, but I wasn't in that scene. So I was watching it on the monitor. And I remember watching uh, Miles and Danny do that scene. And uh, I remember watching it and thinking to myself, oh, this, we're, we're, we're making something really fucking special. This is, it was so beautiful to watch the two of them work and watch it on the monitor. And I, and I like, you know, got tears in my eyes. And I told them after, I said, you, you, you broke me. That was unbelievable to watch that. So you get those moments. And I felt very, very uh, fortunate uh, to be on set that day, but not shoot that particular moment, mm -hmm. um, you know? And so, you know, and then you have moments like that where it's like, that's when you really realize like, oh, this is, Look at where we are. How lucky are we right now that we're getting, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it was such a, it was, you just filled with warmth when you see your two friends and two fellow artists making it work to a point where it, it takes you completely out. Um, it's a beautiful feeling. Beautiful feeling. The entire cast is great. Uh, Matthew yeah. Good is fantastic as Robert Evans. Um, you know, he wrote, Evans wrote The Kid Stays in the Picture. He did an audio book. Uh, which yeah. uh, I listened to when it came out. It's fantastic. It's genius. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's such a golden era for Hollywood because it was a time when a filmmaker could, could have a vision and follow through with it and had a champion like Robert Evans to be able to find a way to help those artists actually get it done. They just don't make studio execs like Robert Evans anymore. No, I think the landscape is different. I don't think you could, you could be that way anymore now with streaming and you know what I mean? It's just a different world that we live in. He was just a rare, rare, rare animal out in the world of uh, film production at that time, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, it, and Matthew does such a great, oh, I mean, I, I just, I just love, love what he did with, with Evans. I love it. Um, but yeah, he was, he was a rare one. So when Sue and I were in, in New York at WNEW, we did morning drive yeah. there. Um, we had Bill Bonanno as a regular guest and he ah. gave us all kinds of insight into what was going on inside uh, the Bonanno crime family and all that stuff. Wow. And we were fascinated. So why are we, and I, when I mean, when I say we, I mean, all of us, the, the world, why are we so fascinated by the mafia and Cosa Nostra? Well, I think it's just that idea of, uh, I mean, I think it's the same way of like, you know, it's sort of a different version of rubbernecking on the highway. You know, you're seeing something or listening to something or gathering information on something you're not supposed to know about. And that just makes it way more exciting. Um, and, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's just a, the voyeur in us. You know, we want to know what we're not supposed to know. And the mafia... It's, it's so deep. It has so many layers to it. And the people are just these characters that you can't believe are real and they are real. And when you get to learn about them, it's just so much more exciting than learning about, you know, the crossing guard at the corner. What I it's love is really the, the loyalty and the honor that's involved in, in a, yeah. in, in the mafia almost makes you say when somebody gets, whacked when somebody gets killed uh you almost think yeah but they they had it coming like they 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 deserved it you know what i'm saying but there's yeah. an honor to inside that world yeah 
Yeah. And it's a frightening honor. You know, it's an honor that has to be, you know, gained by, by violence and, uh, and absolute commitment. Like it's the whole thing of like, you know, you're more committed to the mafia than you are your family. Um, which is so frightening to think of, to being locked into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a fascinating, that kind of violence is just, I think it's just you're in constant awe that it's, that it's, that it actually, that there are people that are built that way that could walk into a club and the, and they, it parts like the Red Sea and they give them everything they want and they treat them with great respect. And then in two seconds later, they could be jamming a, you know, a knife into somebody's throat in an alley. It's such a dichotomy of personality. It's such a strange, you know, juxtaposition of, of, um, of personalities that, that is rare. And it really is only in the mafia that you see that, you know, in any kind of crime organization, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like I remember when we had Banano on, you know, we were talking about, you know, uh, Friday night and Saturday night. You know, you got the girlfriend Friday night and you have the yeah. wife on Saturday night. And yeah. we, I, I mean, I, I can't believe how bold we were, you know. I mean, we were really questioning him and digging into because he talked about family. And I said, you know, how do you talk about family as lovingly as you do? And you're going out with your girlfriend on a Friday night, you know? And, uh, and we were joking about, oh, God, you know, like, you're not going to whack us, are you? I mean, he had such an incredible sense of humor. Um, yeah. And I thought, oh, when I go home, you know, is there going to be a horse's head in my bed? You know, we were just really screwing with him. Yeah. But it, like you say, I mean, and, and even in, in, in the show with uh, Juno Temple's character, you know, there was this, you know, the, the sweet, you know, you know, young guy, you know, who was um, who was uh, Columbo's, uh, you know, young like lieutenant or whatever yeah, he was yeah and 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 he's adorable and he's uh you know he's a gentleman and and he's walking her you know home and then all of a sudden something happens and she sees the 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 really dark you know terrifying part of him and it's like oh my god um yeah it it really is kind of creepy yeah it's a very warped existence um such dedication to family and then at the and such and so protective of family and yet the mafia is supposed to be more important than your family so it's like it's really hard to get your head around how the whole thing exists you know um yeah it's a strange warped super intriguing and i and i think you know scorsese did it you know his portrayal of it in goodfellas was uh you know was spot on to me like that was another film where i was like I kind of know these people. I know these people. And this is the way it is. Okay. I'm going to ask you, know? you for a personal opinion here. So it has become, it's in the movie. It's in the series. Uh, the Sinatra uh, got help from the mob in getting the role of, I think it was Maggio in From Here to Eternity. Do you believe that story? Do you think that story is true? Yeah. I believe that story. I mean, you know, the, the mafia at that time, I mean, think about it. It's like between building a building in New York or Chicago or Baltimore or Kansas, uh, making a movie, there's a difference. They had their hands in everything. And I think there was a time in the world where you couldn't do it. 
um, unless you got permission from the mafia because they were going to take a piece of everything. And I think there was a point in the, in the country where they, they probably had a little piece of probably 80 to 90% of every business. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely believe that stuff for sure. Of course they were in Hollywood. Definitely. Um, you also, uh, were, uh, in the Irishman, which had yeah. to be just like a, a dream. Here's, you know, De Niro and Pacino. And I mean, just uh, Joe Pesci and Harvey Keitel, just a crazy, crazy cast. How did you go about getting, how did you get that role? Was that like a, a self tape? Did you go in uh, on an interview? How did, how'd that happen? Well, I went in and read for Ellen Lewis. Uh, and I think, uh, Scorsese does is he has a, a sort of a standard monologue that he'll let actors read uh, if he's not sure where he wants to place them in the film. And, uh, and that was it. I went and I read that monologue and it was so long after that I even got the role. And even when I got it, I was like, I don't even know what, I don't even know what the role, I don't even know what I'm doing. You know, it was, it was such a, a secretive process. Um, I remember feeling like I blew it and I was like, I just had an opportunity to, to be in a Martin Scorsese film and I blew it. I remember sitting on the curb outside of Ellen Lewis's office in the, in the West village thinking, did I just, this was it, you know? And I, I, I screwed the whole thing up. I didn't feel good about it. Uh, and, uh, and then like, I mean, it must've been two months, three months later. Oh, wow. Uh, I had, I gotten one call that they were like, they checked your availability. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's crazy. Great. And then not, I didn't hear from them for like another month and a half, two months. I was like, uh, okay, I'm just walking away. And then out of nowhere, they were like, uh, you, you got cast. Wardrobe's going to be calling you. I still didn't even know what role it was until wardrobe called. And then I found out, you know, so it was a really weird secretive process. Um, and that was incredible. And then the next thing you knew, I was sitting at a table with De Niro and Pacino. It, it was... <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous I, I mean I, I couldn't even uh, with Scorsese and they're referencing you know it was just unbelievable I, it's hard to even describe um, as an actor sitting there going like De Niro's on my left Pacino's on my right Scorsese's behind me I was like I, 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 this is this is just not even this is not reality I, I can't believe what, what I've done and uh, I remember at one point, uh, and they were the best. They treated me, it, it, there was no, they, they, treated, they treated me like a fellow artist. Like, like we were all just New York actors figuring something out. Like it was amazing. And I felt total freedom with them. And uh, I remember at one point, De Niro said something about uh, a particular shot. He asked Martin Scorsese a question. And, they're sta and we're all huddled together. And Scorsese says um, to, to De Niro, he goes, you remember that? He goes, you remember the sequence we did in Casino? And I'm thinking to myself, is he really, am I really sitting here and they're recalling <laughs> Casino? Like, I'm not, is this what's raining on my head right now? Wow. They're referencing a moment. Because I was like, one thing kept layering over the next. And I was like, Everything was more ridiculous to me than, than the next. And I, and I remember because I would leave whenever they were turning a shot around or we were doing a new setup. Uh, I would go out on the phone and I'd call my mother crying 
because we would both be crying to each other, you know, because mm-hmm. it was like, she like, you know, she's always supported my career. And when I was broke and she was broke, she'd find money for me and she'd pay my rent, she'd feed me. And mm-hmm. she never said, what are you doing? Are you, you're wasting your time. So she was like my lifeline, my, you know, of me being an actor, you know? So to get to that point where I'm sitting at a table with De Niro Pacino and Scorsese is directing me. I couldn't call anybody else when I went outside, but my mother to weep. I go, do you believe where we are? I gotta go. I gotta go to set. I'm like, back. And I'd run back in and I'd wipe my eyes and I'd get back on the set and we'd, you know, do it again. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was un- unbelievable. And they were the most amazing people. And I cherish that. That was just a, a really, really beautiful moment for me. Now, I don't know if guys do this, but if I know that I am meeting important people and I want to make an impression, yeah. I know exactly what I want to wear. <laughs> did, you, did you think about stuff like that before meeting them? Well, I mean, I, I did it because the thing was, is I didn't really, I didn't meet them until I got down to, to, to the soundstage. So I was already in wardrobe. Oh, okay. But but when I left, I remember leaving the studio that day. We were at Kaufman Astoria Studios in Queens. And, you know, what I wore in the film is the complete opposite of the kind of guy I am. I mean, I like my normal sort of things that I wear, you know, I'm kind of just like a sort of a, you know, a, a really, really uh, kind of like a beat poet a very confused beat poet from the 1960s uh, slash, you know, Vietnam vet slash, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, my wife always say, you know, you're, you're, you gotta sort of look homeless all the time. And, uh, and I do, and I may look really good. I love it. I've always dressed like that. So anyway, so when I left the studio, I come out into the lobby and, uh, Anyway, so now I leave, I go into the, now I get out of my wardrobe and I get into the, and I want, and I've got a, an old army coat on, a beret, a scarf, my sack, or my, you know, and De Niro's in the lobby. And I go, oh, you know, Bob, you know, have a great, have a great night. We're, we're, this is so great. And he kind of looked at me like he didn't know me. And then he went, oh, what the fuck? You look totally, yeah. oh my God. I, I, okay. Okay. I can't believe, I, you know, he didn't even recognize me. You know, what the fuck, you look so different. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I look. Um, you know, so uh, unplanned, that, yeah. was, that would be what I would wear. Then it worked out. So you've got a quote on your IMDb page that I love. Um, yeah. Sue's from New York, lives in LA. I, um, I've been in LA for 30 years, but yeah. lived in New York. Um, you're a New Yorker, right? Yeah. And your quote is, In Los Angeles, you have to look for inspiration. In New York City, you can't avoid it. Tell me about that. I mean, I think it's it's exactly what it is, man. And 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 there's a there's a great challenge on on with there's a great challenge with with both coasts in that way. Where in New York, you know, sometimes it's hard to focus because every every you can't turn one degree without seeing something that's inspiring. Uh, that's giving you some kind of an idea, but then you turn another degree and you have another one. And it's like, how do I focus? Everything here is a poem. Everything here is beautiful. And I think in Los Angeles, you do the same thing, but you don't feel that you're turning around going like, where is the inspiration? Everything here is the same. It's nothing is changing. Nothing is moving. 
But what it does is it forces you to look for it, hmm. you know, and that's what I love about Los Angeles. It's not right being spoon fed to you. You got to go out there and bust your ass, but it's out there. It's in there. It's in the city. It's, it's in the layers of the city. And, uh, and when you find it, it's fucking exciting as hell. And then in New York, it's like, I got to pick the thing. Cause there's mm. 50 things that are inspiring me. I got to pick that one, but that's so even, I think it's sometimes it's harder to do. Um, and that's where that comes from. That's how I found, you know, my differences between uh, New York and LA. Huh, that's interesting. I was just yeah. in New York for like four days and, uh, I walked everywhere. Yeah. And the, the thing that I love about New York is that I never like, I never like walk a long distance and think, Oh, when am I going to get there? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's like ev- like you say, everything you see is interesting. There isn't everything, and, and 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 like you say, it's like I, I it's like I don't I don't every everywhere I turn, you know, um, yeah. there's there's a beautiful building, or there's somebody dressed great, or there's a cool looking dog, or you know, yeah. and I guess you know the big difference is that in in New York you walk. And you don't exactly. really do that in in Los Angeles. No, you don't walk in LA. In fact, there's a donut shop two blocks from my house. And I still, if I want to go get donuts, we'll get in you my drive. car and drive yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It, yeah. It's exactly. like classic, classic LA. Totally. Um, totally. Well, listen, man, this has been great. The show is, is unbelievable. It's called The Offer. It is a yeah. 10 episode series on Paramount Plus. If you love The Godfather, uh, you will absolutely love the story of how it was brought to the screen. Uh, hey, thank you so much for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure, you guys, to, to be here with you guys. And uh, just thank you for taking an interest. And, and I love this conversation. Anytime you want to hop on with me, I would love to talk about anything. Awesome, oh, man. Awesome. We'd love to do that. Thank you, Patrick. There you have it. Patrick Gallo, the offer is fantastic. It's amazing that 50 years after The Godfather was made, we're watching a series about how it was made, which speaks to the impact of that movie. It's amazing how I knew nothing about the way it was made, like what it took and all the mob involvement. Yeah. Yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. It's really great. Uh, if you've not watched the offer yet, it is streaming on Paramount plus go check it out, especially if you're a fan of the Godfather and kind of old time Hollywood. Uh, don't forget you can subscribe to the culture pop podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at SteveMason.com, and definitely leave us a rating and a review. Sue, thanks a lot. Thank you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.